Good evening, and welcome back to its 1985 Good Morning. I'm Corey Fry. Try the quiche. Another year over, and a new one's just begun. Unfortunately, despite having New Year's Eve off, I spent the day flattened by the after-effects of some phantom comestible, likely a sandwich. I've never met a sandwich that could fully be trusted. They're like the X's of food. So, instead I stayed behind on my couch, listened to some lamb chop, and contemplated resolutions between pleas for digestive mercy. I think we grasp the utter meaninglessness of a new year. There's no real fresh start. We've basically just assigned significance to a humdrum Tuesday upon which we've dragged our life's baggage. But there's something noble about a holiday that encourages hope, reflection, and resolve to improve. This is the year it happens. I have 365 days of possibility and magic, and when I return to this spot next year, I'll be thinner, happier, cleansed, and more fulfilled. Everything will be better. Everything will be fixed. We all wake up on January 1st and announce, Today, I'm a new person. Then we walk among each other, shiny and aglow, like momentary survivors of a crippling addiction. Like everyone else, I make resolutions and believe in their value. But I'm not much of a New Year guy. I'm more of a milestones fella. Like when you reach a certain age and work to correct some chicken shit wrong you committed as a younger turd. Like for instance, when I turned 30, I thought it was high time I confronted the idiot I'd been in my carefree 20s, so this meant I finally paid off my student loans and purged a pining love I'd nursed for eight years. And for four beautiful months, I was an adult, cleaning house, never suspecting I was just making space for year 40. Because I didn't really change all that much. There'd be more crushes, more pining, more inaction, more mistakes, more regret. So when I finally hit 40, I went for something easier. <laughs> Write a book. Which I did. I worked on it for a couple of years, pitched it to a publisher at age 42, and watched it hit shelves at age 43. Now, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you can visit me at Costco or your city library. I'm reference material, too, so dig the fuck out of that. And uh, My resolutions really are no different from the heavy-minded stock-taking I've done my entire life. It's just that on December 31st, I write them down and upturn the hourglass. They become official goals. And at my age, there are also reassurances that I have plenty of passion and ambition left. It's kind of funny. I remember when I turned 36, I was depressed all day because I realized I was closer to 50 than I was to 20. It's mathematical fact. Now, of course, I'm... I've been told to prepare my ticket and grab my bags. I'm almost at the dock. Familiar faces await in this mystical place that previously only my grandparents and parents had seen. Me. A half century. Not afraid of it anymore. I hope I make it. Most of my resolutions involve easily achievable, mundane things. Professional microphone for this podcast, so I stop sounding like a Scooby-Doo sea monster trapped inside a fridge. You know, bleh, bleh. You know, 
this is an aside, but it always kind of amused me, those old Scooby-Doo episodes, because it was never a supernatural creature, like a genuine ghost or a creature. It was always just some guy in a suit. So that means that some carnival owner or land developer was so desperate that he was willing to humiliate himself by permanently damaging his vocal cords just to keep teenagers off his property. I mean, bleh, whatever. Anyway, my resolutions also included things like keeping a clean apartment and replacing my couch. I'll finally fix that fucking toilet. But others, however, are born of restlessness and a reaction to stasis. I've had this one for about four years now. And I've reached the conclusion that its reality is inevitable. And either I let it happen and hope for the best, or I drop a metaphorical grenade into the middle of it and run. One sounds more responsible, but the other sounds more fun. I want to travel more, read more, eat less, worry less. But overall, I want to feel I have value, especially professionally. Value beyond that which is reliable. Value beyond that which is expected and taken for granted. Value beyond limits imposed upon me. Look, I may be 46, but I ain't finished living. All right? I may be soft and middle-aged, but I've still got fire, drive, talent, and teeth. I determine my worth. I've worked and succeeded long enough on my own reputation to have earned that privilege. And that's the crux of all resolutions, I'd say. I have worth. I have depth. I am better than you or I think. And for one day at least, we can all acknowledge that and dream that it's possible. And then, on January 2nd, it's entirely up to us. Happy New Year! Last night, I picked up the audio version of the Beastie Boys book. It has the unenviable task of matching this lively, big-ass, thick-ass, full-color, eye-popping, sharpened boulder of a tome with just the human voice. But our boys, Ad Rock and Mike D, pull it off by turning it into an audio event with a shit-ton of friends and peers, and some of the choices are quite inspired, like LL Cool J, who gets to read about himself reciting words he didn't write, and channeling a perspective he probably doesn't have. I like audiobooks fine, but they have a tendency to become stagnant, and personally, I have a problem with listening to a single-person drone for 12 hours. The effect is either irritating or hypnotic. And here it's endlessly fascinating, because you never really know who's coming and when, or why a particular person was chosen. I was really intrigued by the section on Paul's Boutique, I'd read a book just on that record. Hell, I have read a book just on that record. If you can find it, I highly recommend Dan LeRoy's 33 and a third book on its production. It's part of the 33 and a third series, and easily my favorite title in that series, because it does a hell of a job of putting that album in the perspective of its and our times. Because in its time, if you can believe it, Paul's Boutique was considered a swing and a miss. It was released in the summer of 1989, so it had been about two, maybe three long years between Beastie Boys albums. I think the only thing that came out in the meantime was a reissue of the 1982 Pollywog Stew EP, 
which captured a much different Beastie Boys than the ones we kids would have recognized. For one, there were four of them, not three. There was no rapping. There was no Adam Horowitz. There was also a girl, Kate Schellenbach, who would later enjoy some measure of fame as a member of the illustrious Luscious Jackson. Plus, they sounded like this. Not bad. That's quite a shock for a generation accustomed to. Paul's Boutique was a shock as well. For better or worse, Capitol Records released Hey Ladies as the first single, which was probably the closest cut in spirit to their previous record, Def Jam's million-selling License to Ill. But that may be giving Capitol Records too much credit, because according to the book, the label did not give a shit. They'd thrown all their marketing weight behind Donny Osmond, who was attempting to transition from irrelevant Hawaiian punch wholesomeness and hush puppy shoe polish to full-blown contemporary grown-up, a pinup rebel that kept the virtuous Ma and Pa Osmond weeping into their solid gold Bibles. At the time, he was pimping a self-titled album, his coming-out party, Surprise, I Have Balls! It had this awful single called Soldier of Love, and it's totally a relic of its time, a cynical short-term bid for quick sales before its audience realizes, hey, this sucks. It's got the drum machines that sound like air guns spitting bubblegum against leather jackets, and old Donnie borrows George Michael's carnal gusto and adapts it for Mormon grandmothers who still won't let their husbands go down there. Donnie's vocals are no different from most popular male singers at the time, a shy, 14-year-old asthmatic with hiccups passing notes to the prettiest girl in study hall. Paul's Boutique, on the other hand, challenged listeners. It's a dense motherfucker. Sampling his art, as often said. It's like someone threw Matt Dyke, genius, and the Dust Brothers into a shop containing every record since wax and said, don't come out until you've used everything. It's a high times mosaic work of fucking revelation, a rare earphones jam in an era built for radio. The samples not only propel each song, they define the whole album. They set the tone and establish the mood in cinematic ways. The 12-minute B-Boy Booyah Bass is practically its own movie, The Beastie Boys' A Day in the Life. In fact, it has a suite called A Year in a Day, and buoyed by the Isley Brothers' Who's That Lady, it kicks some serious ass. It was totally unlike anything that came before it, and it certainly couldn't be released commercially now. Hearing stories about Paul's Boutique's production made me appreciate it that much more. The Beastie Boys defied expectation. Well, likely no one had any for three white guys previously associated with Delta House tits and ass dipshittery. They recorded it all over the place, from professional studios to Matt Dyke's apartment, where the vibe, in retrospect, was right. The book also has this funny aside about how Adam Yauk, rest his soul, MCA, instigator of many a beastie triumph, acquired the phone number used in a radio spot on the album and connected it to a line in his parents' basement, and how its answering machine took on its own surreal life over a period of years, fattening with increasingly strange messages and the prank work of hackers. Released against an intimidating tide of slick behemoths, Paul's Boutique survived brush-offs, ridicule, and bewilderment to conquer them all. What once was modern eventually became archaic, and what once was mocked ended up changing everything. <laughs>